0: Um I don't know if I could love someone else's kids the way I love my kids.
1: Oh, yeah, that's yeah, no, but you in terms of Yeah, that's I get that. So like Oh, no. <laughs> All right, we're, in. we're in. This is a different podcast yes. where uh, neither one of us is the co-host, but the <laughs> listeners of be like, help us please.
0: <laughs> Welcome everyone to the Ripple Effect. Uh, I am Ron Waddell, a co-founder and executive director of Legendary Legacies. Here with my esteemed co-host
1: again, Mary Beth Campbell with the Worcester Community Action Council.
0: And uh, we're here. Thanks for joining us last week on the podcast as we opened up about what the ripple effect is and what we hope to, to do. Um, before we get into anything, I think we definitely got to let people know. I don't know if Mario can pan down, but the oh, shoes today. Pressure.
1: That well, Mary also ba- the pants. summer pants.
0: Those are summer pants?
1: Summer pants.
0: Summer pants, mm-hmm. summer shorts. <laughs> no, that joke. I don't wear shorts, but I get it. Yeah. I wore so I didn't know like wearing shorts to work is not a thing. Do you guys have a dress code policy? Who's going to tell me I can't wear shorts to
1: work? I'm similar with high heels. I actually changed our dress code policy to remove that people were not allowed to use spiked heels. And I was like, uh, that's what I'm known for. Ah. <laughs> I was like, let's remove that. And our HR person was like, well, what happens in the, an emergency? Oh, I was I was like, I'm going out feet first, but I can run in these. I'll die in these. Much <laughs> respect to the people that can run in heels. That is not something yes. I can do. Looks like a pump, feels like a sneaker. What is that? It's, <laughs> it's <laughs> from a um, high heel commercial.
0: I in got the a question. 80s, so here's the women the other playing,
1: they are playing basketball in high heels. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I've tried it. I can do it. Not anymore, but in my 20s.
0: That's another thing to unpack sometimes because it makes me think of the uh, commercials for secret deodorant. Mm. Strong enough for a man, but pH bound. Like oh, why do you have yeah. to, why I does it men- have to be on a, a man? Like-
1: I use men's deodorant. You do? I sweat. I'm a sweater.
0: Do you use aluminum based or are you like natural?
1: I believe mine has aluminum. Get native. Oh, I do. Actually, I use native for travel. The coconut scent.
0: Oh, sea salt and cedar is mine. That's strong. Must I don't be. even know what sea salt smells like. Anyway. Anywho.
1: Okay. Back to the...
0: Um, the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. This happens when we talk about shoes. I know. But your shoes are fancy. And I tried to come correct.
1: I like your shirt because it has this like very like pixeled graph, pixelated graphic kind of look. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Also summary. Yeah. All right. Let's dive in here.
0: So the conversation last time we talked about what we were hoping to do, what we hope to get to um, and beyond. But what I thought that would be good today would be to talk a little bit about Your role, and how do you got here? And um, I love that question too. Like, um, we do that with our participants. Like, how did you get here? Yeah, and then just kind of let you answer it. Yeah, like how and and, like answer it from wherever you want. Um, How did you get to this table?
1: It's a long story, I guess. But no, I I well, I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason, right? So. I have grown up in a family and I say this a lot. Like if you look at articles, if someone's asked me the same question. I say this all the time, but <clears throat> I just think public service is was built into our blood. It's in our DNA and our family or some kind of service in some manner. Um, dating back to my grandparents mm-hmm. um, and my, my parents and my siblings were all in some kind of industry that serves people literally and, and, in terms of the work that I do um, in public service. Uh, but my brother is in the hospitality industry. Like there's a, we're in the blood in giving. There's Got a lot it. of giving. Um, so I- hey, And you, you're from Worcester. I am a fourth generation Worcesterite. Yes. Uh, so my great grandparents, is that how that works? Yeah. Um, One, two. Came, yes. Yeah. They actually- On my dad's side, came from Ireland. Both of his grandparents in separate parts of Ireland, on the boat, literally, um, established here in Worcester. Um, My grandparents raised three children here on my dad's side. I live in my grandmother's house that my dad grew up in. Yep. Uh, I bought that after she passed away seven years That's ago. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was I, interesting. I always have wanted to live there my whole life. Wow. And I knew at some point in my life, I was going to live there.
0: Did you ever find anything now that you own it that you shouldn't have?
1: No, my grand, <laughs> this is a total digression, um, but family lineage, I suppose, is important in all this stuff. Um, my grandmother was not a saver. Mm-hmm. Like her mother worked in the Waterford Crystal Factory. in in Ireland and brought Waterford over uh, to America on the boat. And at some point, my grandmother just didn't feel like having it. She threw it out. Yeah. So she was not, my my grandparents were like kind of minimalist. So when I bought the house and my dad and I demolished a lot of it and like I redid it with the contractor I didn't do it myself, but um, I put a lot more embellishment, you know, like crown molding, if you can call it like. They, but they were very minimalist people. On my mother's side, my... Um, Grandmother was from Canada From Quebec Oh wow Um, Grew up in One of like Eight kids Farmer's daughter So do you like poutine? Well I mean I love french fries With gravy on it Regardless But yeah Um, French fries and gravy Separately Not a thing that is, no, I do love both of those oh. things. Oh. <laughs> I mean, look at me. Um, that was actually watching back the first episode. I was like, lay off the ice cream lady. Um, but I, yeah, they were like hardworking farmers. My grandmother, my nana, my mom's side had this like incredible story where she like went to an abbey to become a nun and then like got sick and her sister came back. Sick from of being a
0: nun or just like physically ill? Both, I think.
1: Oh. And probably once symbiotic, you know, physical manifestation of all of that and her Family was came to Auburn, and she, but she was in this abbey in Canada, and her her sister, as the story goes, like stole her away in the middle of the night, and they came down <laughs> by train to Auburn, snuck um, her out of the. Yep, and she was like covenant, eighteen covenant. or seventeen or eighteen, maybe a little younger. And then she met my grandfather, who was from Grafton. They were also like French Canadian people. Okay, and but had he had multiple generations already in Grafton before him, and they married, and here, here I am. Wow! Um, but, Did you go to school here too? Yeah, uh, I went from, yeah, elementary through high school, and then I went to Providence College. PC. Yes. Friar. Yeah, I'm a friar. A lot of um, Catholic uh, education. and education. From junior high through college. Were you at private school too? Private middle high school? Uh, Middle and high school, I went to St. Peter Mary, which is now St. Paul's. St. Paul's. Um, But before that, I went to McGrath, Francis J. McGrath Elementary. Oh, yeah. Behind Forest Grove. They're still around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I take the fight. dog there sometimes. Um that was a great experience. I loved elementary school. And then junior high I was like, wow. What did you major in at PC? Political science. Wow. Yeah.
0: What got you into that? What made you uh
1: you know, I th- I thought I wanted to be a, a lawyer.
0: S- a lawyer?
1: Yeah. I, I could actually see that. so I don't talk about this a lot, but this is actually part of my career pathway, just back to like origin story. Um I graduated from, so my mom worked for a lawyer in the city uh-huh. and I don't know somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up when I was nine and I thought this guy was cool and my mom liked her work environment and she had work friends and they had a softball team and whatever. And I was like, I want to be a lawyer too. So I'm it, at that point in my life, I was like a stubborn kid. Yeah. And I you're not stubborn anymore. Well, I'm less <laughs> stubborn, but I'm more. Self-aware, and you're not a kid. More self aware and embracing of failure, which I think is kind of part of all this too. Um, I told everybody that I wanted to be a lawyer, cool. and so I graduated from college a week later. I started law school at Suffolk at night. Wow. Um, had to. I my parents. I got a nice scholarship when I went to PC, my parents, you know, helped afford the rest of the tuition. But grad school, law school is on me. Um, And I would have a lot more shoes if I didn't have a law school loan that I just paid off like a year ago. Um, Imagine the shoe collection. Did you finish? We're rebuilding. No, this is part of the story is I went to law school. I was working full-time at the state house. Um, Little nepotism admittedly involved in that. I needed a job. Ain't wrong with little nepotism. Um, And my first boss, uh, my first real job, full-time boss was then now late, the late state representative, John J. Beninda. Um, Any relation to the uh, superintendent, Maureen Beninda? I believe by marriage. Yes. Got it. Um, And I actually had gone to high school with John's son too, who's a, Great guy, um, and I, I, you know, I needed a job, and I needed a job to afford to live in Boston and go to school at night. Facts. And so, through my father's, hot, hot, what,
0: Is this unfair to ask? Like, what time frame is this? Ninth I mean, two thousand? Where were we? Two
1: thousand. Two thousand. Yeah. So I started. I graduated from PC in two thousand, and then immediately started law school, Suffolk at night. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and everybody, I would not recommend that to most people because most people that go to night school, at least at that time, were much older career people no who were way more focused than me, whose friends <laughs> were you know, out and about all night long. Yeah. And I was trying to go to school at night and pay my bills and make $20,000 a year and live in Boston and have a great time. Um, but I, at, I ended up in the energy committee that he was chair of the energy committee at that time. Okay. And I found that I had more of an interest in that I knew the first day I went to law school, I didn't want to be in law school. Yeah. And I was like so mad at myself, but I also didn't want to disappoint anybody. So I stuck it out for the first year. Yep. And my second year, I ended up actually in August of that between my first and second year, I ended up getting appendicitis, and I was in the hospital for like a month, and I missed the first three weeks of law school. And everyone was like, "Take a leave, take a leave," and I was stubborn. No, I was, I'm nope, not. I'm not doing that. And I, it took me years to admit this, but now I share it because I realize the less I failed out, I flunked out of law school. Gotcha. I tried to make it through my second year. Yep. And I. I flunked out. I was I was totally, I was late. Overwhelmed too much. I'm totally overwhelmed. I started three weeks late. I um I didn't care that much about it because at that point I'd been in the workforce for I was approaching my second year in the workforce and I actually loved the energy stuff. I loved the policy stuff. And I just didn't have the career exposure. Prior to that, like, you know, I did internships or I worked at UPS. I like unloaded trucks in the summer. I did cold calls for all- toughest ma- job, you know, all toughest America-
0: job. That UPS summer oh my God, unload? That was my was one of my most favorite jobs. What? <laughs> I, I, I mean,
1: I cried every day, but um, that I just felt like so strong doing that. And I was like this, you know, I looked good that summer. Um, But I just, I, it took me a really long time to realize like I could, could admit, my failure yeah. while paying that school loan off. Gotcha. <laughs> and I still have it on my resume that I attended Suffolk Law because that's a $40,000 line item on my resume. It's like <laughs> that's the one thing it. I got from it. Um, but I, now I tell people because I think it's important to like talk about failures, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I ended up, I worked for the legislature for five years in this committee. Really got into clean energy. It was at the time that energy, um, there was like renewables and clean energy were like being promulgated, like rules around that and regulated. There's that you
0: just did it with promulgated. Promul-
1: promulgated, yeah, yes, you just yeah. Did it. It's a legal legislative term. Uh, so I just I I was just fascinated by that, and then I went to work for a state agency that dealt exclusively in building up the renewable energy universe in massachusetts that then transitioned into doing more workforce development at another clean energy agency that was established in the patrick administration and i started up the workforce division there had no clue what i was doing but (laughs) nobody else did either no one knew anything about workforce development in green jobs got it and i was had been following stuff in new york and i was like yep i got it like fake it till you make it (laughs) you're a gsd person just do it. Get get it done. Get Can we swear? On? Can we swear on this podcast? I mean, it's get, a family friendly. Get stuff done. Um, so. Yeah, this is, like I said, a long story, and there's so many things intertwined in that. Um, But I eventually went to work exclusively in workforce development in the Patrick administration. I worked for three cabinet secretaries. Um, That's like, wait,
0: you're just like passing over that. Like, oh, I just worked with some cabinet secretaries. You know, I was in the state, just kind of figuring out energy for the whole state. Nothing big.
1: Well, I mean, I was part, like, I wasn't like leading the charge on those things. I was but you were of in the room, it. yeah. So there's a ton. That it was you cool picked to up, see, right? yeah, yeah. Like, and I think looking back, I I value that more than at the time. I was like so focused on like doing things the right way and getting stuff done and being uh, relied on and loyal and not realizing like how hard the work was actually. Like it. I just did it, you know. Yeah. yeah. And in this. The working for the three cabinet secretaries it was kind of like a made-up position. They were trying to figure out how to breed resources among education, workforce development, and economic development, which is now the sustained cabinet called the Workforce Skills Cabinet that the Baker administration, like kind of picked up from the this one singular role that I held, built a whole cabinet around it, and now this new administration actually so wait, is still you, carrying you are, forward.
0: You, you are definitely are- <clears throat> that is a big deal. Then you were the catalyst for this massive you you were the you were the beginning of that
1: i was the test case for sure yeah so
0: because you did a good job However you did it. They say, you know what? We should keep doing this. Yeah, there
1: was a lot of components that made sense. And then again, like there's always like that's in our saboteur, right? So, you you know, as even as leads of our respective organizations, there's like this little like, am I doing this right? And then the reality is like, I I actually don't know. The reality is I've come to realize most people don't know. Right. And it's, you just kind of bounce off relationships a little bit and learn as you go and try to be reflective. And um, so I left, the Patrick administration and I end up becoming executive director of a workforce collaborative that was part of the Boston Foundation. Skillworks. Skillworks. Correct. One good recollection. Yeah, that's good. Um, often referred to as skills works, but... But yes. that's not proper. <laughs> no, it's not proper. No. Um, <clears throat> so that that was, I was the boss of myself and one other person and I managed like a advisory group kind of group. So, but that that actually got my, it, and it was philanthropic. So that's where in the last episode, I talked a little bit about coming from philanthropy and this mindset of like being a thought partner and strategy developer and also being a funder. So SkillWorks was funding <clears throat> initiatives. Workforce development initiatives in Boston proper. Got it. It was co-funded Boston by proper. the city of Boston and the Boston Foundation. So then Mayor Menino, and Paul Grogan, who was the CEO of TBF for 15, 16 years prior to my arrival. I had a predecessor who had been there for 10 years before I came along. Um, so so, like, so you left the cabinet thing yes. to go. Here. Yep. Okay. Yep. And you know, the administration was coming to an end. And so then you had energy and some yes. uh, workforce,
0: development workforce development at this development. point. This really was kind
1: of being and policy. Coming together for policy. Exactly. Wow. Yes. A so lot of- but I was feeling, you know, I'd been at Skillworks for three, four years and had started. I felt like there was so much happening in Worcester that I lived here. I lived here, but I oh, didn't- Oh, you were commuting out to I Boston. Was commuting. I commuted to Boston for 10 years. Wow. do you drive um, or take the train? I drove mostly so I could control my schedule better. I see. The train schedules at the time yeah, they want, were not conducive no, yeah. for me leaving at six in the morning Understood. and getting home at eight at night. Um, or having control. And in my the later part of school works, my dad was ill. So okay. I, um, wanted to, I- Wanted to be able to- I want to be able to like leave and port, yeah, whatever. do whatever. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that, I think for me, at that point in my life, in my career, I think I was kind of assessing like what skills I had and what I, I like to look at my taking a job as like, how is that going to get me to the next, next thing? One. Yeah. And it's funny- where I am now, I am like completely fulfilled, which was not, it was it's not been that way the whole four years I've been at, at WCAC. Um, but I don't have my sight on anything anymore. Um, at least not at the moment. I mean, right. I, I suppose that could change, but yeah. I don't have, I feel, I actually feel like my skill set and my experience, my knowledge, my self awareness is, is at a, um, my sea legs are better. Got it. You know? Got it. And I feel like I actually can optimize that a little bit more than I have in the past. So, So you
0: came to Worcester four years ago?
1: Yep. I just felt compelled like I wanted to, I wanted to do more in the city that I love, in the city that raised me. Yeah. I joined the board of WCAC actually. Before? Before, yeah. So I was still
0: at So when you applied, were you on the board?
1: I resigned. I stepped off and then I applied. Yeah. Yes. Um, And with and I was because
0: you were on the board. Is that how you knew about the opportunity?
1: Yes. I mean, I had figured at some point my predecessor, uh, Jill DeGillis, who's an incredible woman, very well-respected woman, did incredible things at WCAC and in the city writ
0: large. Still doing amazing stuff.
1: Yes, for sure. And um, I was just texting with her minutes ago. Um, I knew at some point she would probably be thinking about like her own succession and planning and that kind of stuff. I didn't expect it was going to happen as soon as it did. Sure, Um, But I jumped on the opportunity so I resigned my seat from the board and like the next day I applied to the job. Yeah. She had announced it to the board that she was, and they were Starting to plan a search process, and I so I I excused myself from a, that and yep. resigned, yep. and yep. so I didn't have any unfair advantage. But no um, and I honestly I was like, would you say though
0: that it was an, it was not an unfair advantage? I'm not like trying, but like they kind of knew you from the board.
1: Yeah, but I think they knew many other people who probably put their names into. I mean, I'm really happy small, you're here. I'm just small little community. You know how Worcester is like you're you if you're talking to someone about someone you should assume they know who you're talking <laughs> exactly. about. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Um so yeah, that's kind of in the you know, being an executive director, I you know, I was an ED at Skillworks, but it was me and one staff person, you know. So it's yeah. in a, a million and a half, two million dollar budget. Um, I've learned an incredible amount in the last four years that as a as a leader, you have to admit that you don't know stuff. <laughs> you you're not the smartest person in the room. Uh and to try to trust and build teams and it's an imperfect practice. For you know? sure. For sure. Yeah. So that's how I ended up here.
0: Uh it's funny you say that uh, it's an imperfect practice. I was listening to um a audiobook uh by Henry Nguyen, uh philosopher theologian. And um I'm going to mess this up, but I I loved what he said. He said that uh, forgiveness is the lubricant of community.
1: Mm, Interesting.
0: Like, because everyone's in, like, if you don't operate with that level of forgiveness and being able to know that I'm not perfect and I'm going to mess up, like holding someone to that standard is not realistic. Yeah. If you really want to have healthy community.
1: I could, yeah, I I understand that. I think that, I think that could even be applied in our relationship. I think you and I have had, like, tense things in our conversations and not that we've had to forgive each other for anything in particular, but like, we've yeah. had like,
0: I like, cried one night.
1: Yep. I'm thinking of that yeah. specifically. Yeah. It was pretty intense. <laughs> well, I mean, and that was part of lead, our, like our own leadership development. Like the two of us just like really hashing out an argument around, Oh yes. Around, I think personal, professional and organizational growth. Yes, it's
0: true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like it, there was a, a a screaming match on Shoesbury Street. There was, <laughs> there was, there was. Um, and, but I think we, I had a he moment. He doesn't care, Mary yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yes. It. I
0: remember.
1: And that, but that's like this is why your emotions can't come, can't come, and came from a place of like caring so much about the mission. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And. I I think that's part, and me too. But I also I I was taking more of a calculated approach to it. Of right. like, you're gonna have to learn this really hard lesson that everyone's learned at this point.
0: Right.
1: If you've gone through this stage, like you were a small, few person yeah, shop. It was the three of us. Yeah, and I I was I th- went from two people to 130 people. Right. You know, and so I experienced it in a different way than you did. For but sure. I I learned I trial by fire kind of had to learn that lesson in the hard way I think but a little faster and but I think that's why we ended up actually trying to do this podcast too so here just, so this yeah. is a good
0: thing yeah. um, so I was already working at WCAC when you got the job yeah um, so when you first met we, we were like Obviously, you're like, this dude's handsome. But then, uh, other than that, like.
1: My proclivities lie another way, but yes. <laughs> but
0: that doesn't mean that you can't say that.
1: No, I, objectively, I can say you're handsome. Yeah, yes.
0: I mean, everyone does. But yes. in any case, I'm just, anyway. <laughs> but like, so when you, when you, when yeah. you, like, what, what like you came in, you, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, the Safe and Successful Youth Initiative um, had. Been there for about a year. I'm sure they're yeah. giving you an overview of the entire organization. This yeah, is a got, small part. Yeah. yeah. Um, so which, when you heard about the SSY, us being there, like, what?
1: Well, I think I did have a natural interest in it without understanding at that point, the full, like, texture of the work um, and the, all the players and the history that came with it. In terms oh, of rel- sure. relationships and yeah. partnership, yeah. Um, which I think has contributed to where we are now a little bit. Um, but I, my father was a police officer yes. in the city. And so I had some I, it, some instinct to want to be interested in the work because I, I knew the captain in charge of the partnership on the PD's end, you know? No doubt. Um, and And I, I thought maybe I could be helpful in some way without also getting in the, I knew- I knew immediately I was not going to be adding like a ton of value <laughs> to the pedagogy of it at all.
0: But. And so what Mary, so the Safe and Successful Youth Initiative is um, an initiative that was started, uh, I think, almost more than a decade ago, 10, 15 years by the Deval the Patrick administration. Um, and the way that the language in the state, I don't like it, but I believe it says something to this effect that these are the most violent offenders between the ages of 17 and 24 in your community. Yeah. The top 3% most violent. Mm -hmm. I think that's the actual um, language they use Mm -hmm. um, between 17 and 24. And it is in 14 cities across the Commonwealth, I believe. Okay, right. Um, And so... There are a number of different uh, organizations across the Commonwealth that provide support and services. This was the program you may remember from the last episode was the program that I was working under with a previous organization. um, And that grant, the Safe and Successful University, was moved to WCAC. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the work we're talking about, working um, with those who are returning from incarceration, heavily gang-involved, Uh, Most of the, the, they did add um, young women later on, but initially Mm -hmm. when I started, it was just young men. Mm -hmm. And we had been doing that work under uh, Straight Ahead Ministries for three or four years before coming over. And um, the work kind of came with us. Yes. (laughs) Like WCC got the grant and we like followed the money. Yeah. Um, And so we were still doing that work. Um, How did
1: that, so I actually don't really know the details of how that part happened.
0: That was scary. That was scary. Were
1: you approached or you approached? Like, how did that actually happen?
0: So for us, it was very scary. Uh, Me and um, my co-founder, Junito Ramos. So at the time, uh, Straight Ahead had had let us know that they were going to be moving away from it and had given us a significant runway to try to figure out what we were going to do. I... Was at Boston University in their graduate certificate course for nonprofit management, and you know how those go. You're sitting there, and then you got your co- your uh, your, lead- your cohort leader, and you kind of present your problems. and I was like, "This is the problem." Like they're they're like, "You got to start your own nonprofit." That's what you got to do. And I'm like, "What?" That was the answer. <laughs> and you had to present. And you were like, "Okay." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's what we got to do." And I was like, "We're gonna do it." And so initially, I founded uh, Legendary Legacies and I was hoping to have Straight Ahead Ministries subcontract the work to us. Ah, okay. So I was in conversations before WCAC even came in the picture. I was talking with uh, Straight Ahead Ministries administration about, hey, why don't you subcontract this work to us Mm -hmm. and we'll just keep doing it. Spin us off. Yeah. Underneath you guys. Um, And we were going back and forth on the negotiations, what that could look like. And I think somewhere in there, the, to your point, where I learned that the, the city who-
1: Actually is a grand, the grantee. The yeah. grantee yeah.
0: was looking at the sustainability possibly mm-hmm. or the structure of that and saying, and at this point I can look at it and be like, yeah, I probably wouldn't take that bet either. Yeah. Right? You're yeah. going to do what? So you've never, when did you start that nonprofit? Three weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to invest everything in that Yeah. yeah. Um, to be like, here's WCAC. At the time, I took a lot of offense to it though, yeah. uh, because I was like, we're the ones that have been doing this work. We know the work. Why wouldn't we get it? Mm-hmm. And so we were up until, like, and we were marketing ourselves. We had, we had yes. gotten legendary stuff. We were walking yeah. around the city. I was confident that we could get this done with straight ahead. Unfortunately, we weren't able to make that contract work. The uh, director of the JEC at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, Carrick O'Brien, a great friend of ours. And um, I love Carrick. I love what they're doing with Mohawk. Um, We were in conversations about this because WCAC was the employment partner. yes. And I know there was conversations about possibly them taking it over. And so this was coming up near the end of the fiscal year. And we didn't know. Like me and me and June literally didn't know where- Where are you were going to no, live? We no, didn't, we didn't know where our income was going to come from.
1: So is what happened that you just kind of got seconded over to WCAC?
0: So when the when, when the grant went over, right? Um, before it actually uh, officially went over, uh, Carrick was talking with it. She was like, look, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go. Yeah. And so you guys would start this day and this is how we would do it. And so it was about two weeks- In between, Mm -hmm. before we got that call from Carrick, that we didn't know. And so we were kind of in limbo. And then Carrick told us that this is what's going to happen. And we came over, and um, that's how we ended up at WCAC. We we were, it was very fascinating because this was my first experience. The budget for the program, Mm -hmm. when it was that straight ahead, I helped create. Right, yeah. And so when the, when the money went to WCAC, obviously WCAC writes their own budget. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, whoa. Yeah. Because the budget that we created and the way that we had allocated the funds and everything, I um, had a lot to learn. Uh, but it was like, hey, we have this many positions and this is where our money went. And when it went over here, it was like, well, these disappeared and our mm-hmm. salaries dropped to this. And it was like, well, why? We're like, where's the money? What are we doing? Um, much larger organization, other things going on. Um, so there was a lot of stuff we had to learn, too, in that space. Yeah. So when you came on, um, we were still kind of trying to figure out where we fit.
1: Yeah. And we talked about that last episode of the attempted woo and then, yeah, a recognition that... And I, it's obviously worked out for the better. Yeah. Yeah. For, um, for a number of different parties, um, not the least of which uh, participants, because I think we were able to absorb a contract that had gone away from another organization and... Use that as a way to subcontract with you guys, and who had a, I think, greater fidelity in your model to actually deliver services in a higher quality way.
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, it was a, it's, it was a big risk, you know. Um, yeah. We we could not have we could not have handled it initially. Yeah. I, I don't think so. I don't. There was so much I didn't know.
1: Right. And that's part of, I mean, but you've also, how old are, like, since then, it's been 4 plus. just say four years, roughly. Essentially, yeah. You've, how many employees do you have now? Ten. Ten. So you've increased, like, tenfold, almost. Five times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and over, um, approaching a million-dollar budget. We're over. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. That's really, that's also scary, too. That's heck of in, scary. In terms of growth, like growing at that pace.
0: <clears throat> in the So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, and needing to put pauses. I was talking about this with um, someone recently, uh, uh, our intern, uh, Jaden. I was like, Jaden, they, it's interesting because there are opportunities that present themselves. And I think this is part of our broader conversation too as nonprofits, going back to the last episode, like, um, what do you pursue? What you don't pursue? Right. Um, there are opportunities that come, but balancing the infrastructure of your organization right. with the opportunities. And be, like I've turned early on, we landed a, with the help of Open Sky, mentioned last a state grant uh, from the Department of Public Health and BSAS it was for uh, reentry for black and Latino males who have a history of substance use disorder. And I've got to brag here on my team because um, the team who oversees that program, we were selected to present at a national forum. Nice. Yes, in DC. Um, It's called the uh, Community Opioid. I'll look it up. I can't remember, it's a big acronym, Uh, but they're going to present. So I'm really proud of them and what they were able to do with that program. But right after getting that $450,000, we were approached by um, JDAI, Juvenile Diversion folks. And they were like, hey, we have this other grant. It's like $750,000. And we think you should apply for it. Now, mind you, like- before the 450,000, like we didn't, we were, right. <laughs> we had, we had like the money <laughs> like, you gave us. Yeah. 60, like, 10,000 and 60, huge, yeah. No, yeah, it was not right? a huge amount. So it yeah. was like, oh, this will help us be around for, and, and, and that was a really difficult decision. I chose to turn it down. Yeah. Um, and I remember folks being like, what? You're turning it down? I'm like, dude, if we take this, I'll tell you what's going to happen. One, I'm going to burn out the staff. Right. And two, I don't think we'd be able to deliver the service with the fidelity and the intentionality that I would want us to operate with. So
1: yeah, I just, right before I came here, I had this conversation with one of my staff, uh, it, it who's the director of the Job and Education Center, same, same program and division as SSYI. And it's related to our SSYI decision to move away from our role as the lead of that, um, and we talked about that last episode in terms of knowing and not knowing what we're number one experts in. But we were talking about how to reimagine the division if it's necessary to do that and not do things that we're not good at. Yeah. You know, And think about where we can add value, um, be a good partner and select good partners that are based on our values and um, that we can gain value from also. And it's, it's a really, as a coming from philanthropy um, into this role, and even coming from being um, at the policy level when I was in, the, in my various state roles, you know, and this is a lesson learned now that I'm on the service side, is like, <clears throat> we succumb to so many rules and regulations around how we do the work and through the lens of a funder. Or the yeah. prescriptiveness of a funder, whether it's philanthropic or um, or public, and I think philanthropy has shifted. Is there's, there's been a big shift in philanthropy of this trust based philanthropy, um, which I think we've seen some seeds of good, successful seeds of in Worcester with the foundation here, um, but across the board, I think there's a big shift in this kind of trust based philanthropy of being less prescriptive and having strong fidelity of saying you're the experts tell us what you need, but it's taken a long time to get to that point. Yeah. And, but as a nonprofit, we have to make decisions that, and I, what I think happens in the funding universe is it's, it's so enticing to go for money and it's so enticing to compete. And then what I have seen happen is you dilute your expertise because you're trying to be everything to everybody. No doubt. And so you don't strengthen the, pill, the main pillars, and so and that leads to. We kind of alluded a little bit to this conversation last week of this idea of oversaturation right. of nonprofits and it, funders. I think tend to drive that a little bit because we are des in some ways. There's a desperation to just kind of keep resources available. You know.
0: Yeah, I wanted to go back to the. Time at WCAC a little bit and unpack a little bit of like the wooing process um, that you refer to mm-hmm. with legendary, and I one of for me I'm I'm trying to what 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 was your view of us though? because like, at some yeah. point you were like, hey, I think we can maybe get them somehow. That shifted later on, but like how how did that how did that
1: why did I even think that was a possibility? Well, yeah, yeah, well, I think I said this last episode, but I first and foremost i I'm interested in people who care about the work and who are gonna be thoughtful about it. so if you have some passion for it, um that i I'll take that any day of the week. um you want to be there, you want to be present, you're being thoughtful about it um and you know, both responsive and proactive to the needs of whatever you know community we're serving, whether it's youth, etc. Um, so that that was obvious from the get go. Um, I think there was um, confidence in your knowledge. You had you were exhibiting you and Janito exhibited confidence in your knowledge and your skill set. Um, and not to say anyone else on that team wasn't doing that at all. I mean, I'm very confident in that team. Both the Team that has is no longer there, and the team that's there now, no doubt. Um, because people bring different strengths to the table. But I, in part, because I didn't, I was not knowledgeable about the space um, and trying to get a handle on the understanding. The, I understand partnership dynamics; that I understood immediately. But the actual delivery of services and the importance of how it was delivered—that wasn't an area that gotcha. I, I was confident in at all. And I also was very cognizant of not making decisions that were going to be harmful either. So I liked the idea of like status quo, you know, too, Um, of like, let's keep things as is. And then let me figure this out too with our team and decide maybe down the road, like what would be a better solution if if a better solution might be necessary. Yeah. I just, I didn't know the answers to anything at that point. Because this was pretty early in my tenure too, in terms of- Yeah, I don't think to, your first year was done. No. I mean, it definitely wasn't because we were meeting in person about things. That's and true. Because the pandemic- COVID came yeah. at month seven in my- No doubt. Four years. Wow. It, it month was, seven. Wow. Yeah. It was that fast. Huh? Yeah, it was that fast. It was like- whoosh, Slap you in the face, you're gonna learn a few things real quick. You know, the
0: interesting thing, <laughs> um, I I didn't talk about this broadly, but the same time, so 2018 mm-hmm. is when the SSY grant went over mm-hmm. to um WCAC. And so this was the wild thing for me. I I st I founded started legendary in April of 2018, July of 2018, we go to WCAC. In September of 2018, I come home from work one day, um, and there's a Dear John letter on my door for my wife of 12 years that I want to divorce.
1: I didn't, I knew a little bit of that story. I didn't know there was a letter.
0: That, that's how I just, that's how I found out. I, I came home, I, I'll never forget. I was, I left work early to go take them to see Smallfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I got home, the letter was there. I called a good friend of mine who's also in the city now, Angel Guzman, and uh, I was like, um, Dude, i I think i'm I think i'm getting divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, my my I have two sons, Joshua and Isaiah. Their their mom and I are working tremendously together now. The
1: Lemonade Brothers, The Lemonade Bros. Sponsorship, sponsorship coming.
0: Lemonade Bros. <laughs> they they have an event actually this uh uh this sun this Sunday yeah. at Burncoat. Um, but um, and uh, I think she made a great decision. Actually, I can say that now confidently. At the time, I wouldn't have, um, but I was not a good husband. And she made a, a wise decision for herself, but all this turmoil happening was in the, happening in my life yeah. at this yeah. time. And so, um, the fact that like we didn't know where we were going to be, yeah, um, going through that with uh, the straight ahead situation, ending up at WCAC, funds getting cut uh, from the budget shift. Um, Divorce uh, yeah, happening, a lot of things. yeah, and so one of the things I was really grateful for, though, is even during my time there, is why uh, I shouted her out, Carrick O'Brien, was she was she was really gracious and did a great job of managing from an emotional intelligence standpoint, mm-hmm. um,
1: and knowing that like she was good at team development, she, she really I'm sure still is, but yeah. she
0: really yeah. she really really supported me in a way that. I like to say impacted me to how I do some of my supervision today, yeah, with my staff mm-hmm. um, but it was super scary, yeah. uh, kind of
1: well, I think there's we cannot deny that well, forty to sixty hours of our week, you know being leaders of an any size entity, um we can't you know we spend a ton of time, we spend more time at work, probably awake at work than we do in most of other parts of our life. But there's no denying that those other parts of our life impact how and when and what we do in our work. So that's a lot too. There, there, were, there were days I could not come to work. Yeah. I called out.
0: I'm yeah. just, I, I can't do it. Yeah. You know, yeah, mentally, I just don't have it. Yeah. Because of the population we're working with, yeah. the the stress of the work, and then like all that, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, that was really tough. I will say this segue for folks that are on here though, that I chose to go to therapy Mm -hmm. um, and I recommend it. It was so helpful for me. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever gone at 37 years old Mm -hmm. and what it provided for me and helping understand more about who I am, um, how I responded to stuff and um, just the benefit of having someone to be able to help you unpack.
1: Yeah. I think even talking about it as, you know, this idea of vulnerability over certainty is important. Like, I, you know, I don't have my MBA. I didn't go to grad school. I flunked out of law school. I'm making faking it till I make it a little bit in terms of learning what it means to be a good leader. Yeah. Um, I think instinctually I have those parts, I but agree. I'm also I, I'm also surrounded by like really smart people for sure um, who have learned a ton from my our COO Carrie Brennan. Um, she, she's really good at like the operations. I need and, one of those. I need a Carrie Brennan. Well, yes. And everyone needs a Carrie Brennan in their life because we should have her on as a guest at some point because she, she and I also think- Carrie, you're coming on. The two most hilarious people. Um, but I think I'm the type of person, like uh, anyone who, the millions of people who will be listening and watching this at some point. <laughs> my millions co- and my, millions my of My colleagues, fans. one in particular, this woman, Alicia Ward, I, I use this analogy with her a lot too. Um I like. I'm a detailed person, and I'm organized. My thoughts are organized. I can be a little like. I can start a story in the middle of the s- middle of the story sometimes, but I um, I liken my thinking around like I have vision. So like, I, my analogy is like I like sandwiches. Okay. Okay. This is, and I also have this quick digression that I have this theory that your favorite meal of the day is the time of day that you were born. Wow. I like lunch. Um, I was born at lunch. Got it. That's my theory. I also like all the other meals too. (laughs) (laughs) I really like, I love a sandwich, but like I love sandwiches so much. I see a sandwich. I want to eat the sandwich. And Carrie and other colleagues and friends in my life that I worked with um, will be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where's the sandwich from? Who made the sandwich? What's in the sandwich? Do you like what's in the sand? So she and I balance each other well because I want to go, go, go. Facts. I get frustrated by lack of urgency or lack of sense of urgency. But you have to, like, you have to be vulnerable and admit stuff, right? You can't be certain that you know everything. And you have to have people in at least one person on your team, if not more. And I have multiple people on my team who are like, let's think through this. And I think. I've learned to appreciate process and time. Yes. Over urgency. Yeah. 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 I, that. And being vulnerable, without crossing crossing lines of like being sharing too much.
0: Yeah. I mean yeah. the 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 ability of being vulnerable. Um, Brene Brown's done a lot of work yeah. on that. Shout out to Brene for what she's done. Um, I I've read her stuff. Yeah. Um, and really tried to weave some of her thoughts and ideas and philosophies into how we built the culture here um, and having that level of vulnerability and being transparent. I think that's the other piece. Um, being able to, as a leader also, being able to have that conversation. Because this is the thing I made up in my head, that if I tell you if there's chinks in the armor, then you're not going to want
1: to... yeah. <laughs> right. Why the, the risk is, you're greater. not going to follow
0: you you're, you're going to yeah. be like, why, why would I listen to this yeah. guy?
1: But that, so that goes back to our conversation in the first episode too, around, you know, this idea that of what, how trust is defined somehow through the funders eyes, whether it's public or philanthropic Yeah. of, you know, if you're bigger and you have this type of department or that type of governance or that you automatically maybe get more trusted and people can, Please feel free to disagree with me. Um, that's just been my personal observation and experience that, frankly, I've benefited from. Yeah. Um, I've always worked in big organizations. Yep. I've not worked in a small nonprofit or a small anything. Um, I worked. I've worked for institutions for sure. Um, so that's my. That is my lesson. That's my learned observation. I'm like, why did we get that money? <laughs> uh. <laughs> or not that, I mean, there's, I, we, we've gotten better, I think. And I related to what we were just talking about of like making decisions around going after funding because you're good at something and you want to expand on it and go deeper and invest in it versus going after money because you need money Um, that takes you away from, you know, your guardrails. I think that... For me, the lesson that I've observed, in, or my observed lessons, is that that's what has actually got me to this point of thinking about. Like we have benefited as an agency, I've been in institutions that have benefited because of the size um, and history of that agency, and I've seen what has worked well and what hasn't worked well, and I've now I'm now more honed in on this idea of. Let's stick to what we are good at, be aggressive about building it and sustaining it and maintaining it and curating it and caring for it. And then figure out where we have holes and build better partnerships.
0: The ability to take that step back, you you feel like you've learned that most since you've been here in Worcester?
1: I think I've observed it more closely as the head of a larger organization. But if I really think back in time, even in my role as a funder, even in my role as a public employee that was administering rules and regulations about something, um, as, I, as I have reflected back on the things I did well in those roles versus not, that's a compilation of what my thinking is now.
0: Gotcha. When When we... Were able to make the decision, or you guys were able to make the you made the decision with all your other folks on your team to support legendary, um, in the way that you guys did. I don't know if I shared, uh, and we'll talk more about this next episode as I kind of give my backstory to how we got here. But it it was exciting and also terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, in that oh shoot, like they're going to trust us with this money. So the other side of it, yeah. being like, hey, we we haven't been trusted with this. We we are how we've carried ourselves, who we are, how yeah. we developed. And I think broader, um, even other organizations I'm thinking through, love for, to hear from our smaller organizations as well. Like it, it was like, yes, you can trust us. Like we, we're gonna do it, right. But then like when we got it, it was almost like, oh shoot.
1: I still feel that way when we get money. I'm like, oh guys, we better do this, but
0: right? <laughs> well, that's why you're leading the leading the organization, you know? right, and doing yeah. well.
1: But I think we—that's what we talked about the first episode—is like this. There has to be some idea of blind trust and faith a little bit because even it, you know where we are stewards of whatever resources we're getting. I love that word. And regardless of where it's coming from, there's there at some point there's some mutual agreement in this give and ask and take that there's agreement surrounding that. This is what I learned in law school. <laughs> Meeting of the minds. That was like day two of law school. And then I was like, I'm out. Um, but I <laughs> did you learn I, about your Batna? I have no idea what that is. Was that in your beyond year two? Beyond year one, well, year I didn't two go was to law a wash school, for me. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My law school was you I
1: don't know
0: that Batna, is. your 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 best alternative to a negotiated agreement.
1: Oh, geez, no. You should,
0: you should always yeah. know your Batna before you go into a negotiation.
1: Okay. Well, act that worked in in terms of how this came to be, right? I know my BATNA. Your BATNA. It's a terrible acronym sounding, but <laughs> It's,
0: <I> mean... <laughs> <laughs> it's a negotiation business term.
1: <laughs> so where
0: where was I? Oh, in uh, uh, what you've learned in law school.
1: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that in any scenario, there's some kind of mutual agreement that you're going to do the thing you said you were going to do. Ballad. And sometimes there's barriers to being able to do that. You You... Predicate applying for a grant based on the staffing. You have somebody leaves. You're like, oh, geez. You know, whatever that is, regardless of the size of your organization, there is risk in it. And I think this might happen more frequently in the public sector funding domain is there's way more risk involved because it's it's taxpayer dollars, you know? And so, you know, no one wants to end up in the Herald, you know, or whatever it is. Or the telegram? telegram? Yes,
0: sure. You might not get put in there. There's like eight writers there now. Is that right? I don't know. Oh. They, their workforce was cut drastically, though. Indeed, yes.
1: Um, well, regardless, I think um, there's there's always risk involved. It's like how much risk are you willing to assume? And I what I think there's less risk being willed in the public sector domain than there is maybe in the philanthropic domain. Um, but, and I think that is a hindrance to ultimately smaller organizations. So this is a wonderful question.
0: Um, and it may even be unfair to ask right now, but I'm going to ask it. So, man, I feel like this is a whole nother podcast though, but like interests. So what you said was that people don't want to end up in the Herald.
1: Valid, right? I, only, I say that also because I work for someone who... His nickname was Spuds in the Herald and Howie Cards. So Spuds is, in the Herald. My old boss was called Spuds.
0: Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Spuds. If I ever get a dog, I'm going to name it Spuds. Spuds McKenzie. Actually, I'm not. Actually, you know what? I'm going to name my dog. I'm sorry. Uh, DoG. DoG. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> so Dad <but>. jokes. <laughs> and my cat will be C-A-T. Um. Anyway. Um. The sometimes. What do,
1: you, what do you call a fish with no eye? I don't know. <sighs> <laughs> Mario, do not edit the yes, dad Let dad that
0: jokes. roll. <laughs> let it roll. Let it roll. Uh, what do you call a deer with no eyes? Dead. I don't know. No eye deer. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, deer, uh, last <laughs> one, last <laughs> one, last one, last one. Deer, deer, deer with no eyes, no legs. Still no idea. (laughs)
1: I'm so mad that I'm not fast enough to answer it.
0: Competing interests. Yes. So if someone's in, sometimes I find myself wrestling with this conversation in my head about if public interest or or, or the public's interest is avoiding the paper. Mm-hmm. Versus my interest of doing this work, sometimes our interests are going to clash. Yes, agreed. And so, again, this, like I said, this is a, a another conversation down the line. But how do you, how do you work through that
1: type of challenge? Ooh, yeah, that is. I think that's a a good framing. It's I being res- we have to be respectful that we are steward like i said stewarding public resources right so there's an expectation around that that not that it doesn't exist in other funding streams but um because philanthropy has that too it's people's money no doubt um but yeah i think there's we were talking about overpackaging last episode and i think that's part of it is we have, we've got to renegotiate the terms a little bit um and that i think that's n- in my experience, is running an anti-poverty agency. Right. Of this, We have not solved poverty, like I said, news alert. Um, but that is, in, I believe, in part because we are so over-regulated and have so much compliance to deal with that, that our admin costs are spent on dotting I's and crossing T's rather than actually figuring out ways to help people become self-sufficient and economically mobile on their terms.
0: And that is part of why we're here talking anyway. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, The Ripple Effect podcast is really about having these conversations um, where it may have bottlenecked or it may have gotten clogged up a little bit and thinking about other ways to do things so that it can allow things to move forward, not create the tension, understanding that people have different interests, but I love your word. Can we renegotiate relationships and reframe the conversation around how we're doing the work?
1: And I would be somebody would be hard-pressed to convince me otherwise, based on the history of community action, in the 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 origins of that from Sergeant Shriver and the challenges that he had actually, you know, he crisscrossed the country marketing community action and head start and as as tied to civil rights also it would be very difficult for somebody to convince me that the aftermath of creation that there are certain members of congress at the time that they didn't put intentional structural racism into the regulations I'd, someone would be it would have a very difficult time convincing me otherwise i i've I believe in many ways when I get especially when I get frustrated about the things that we are forced to comply with or focus on because of compliance I there are days where I am convinced we exist to mitigate fraud which which is wildly It's often. a different it's a different interest. It's a different interest of frankly keeping people poor right? So I right. am I run a community action program. I'm less interested in running a traditional community action program. Right. I want to try something different. And not to say my peers, especially in Massachusetts, I have incredible mentors actually and peers that have been doing this a lot longer than me. No doubt. Um, and there are a thousand community action agencies under that defined you know definition named community action and there's tons of other you know organizations doing anti poverty work in health across every sector um so i'm certainly not saying that i'm number one expert but i think that my uh, again my observation and experience is that we are so overpackaged intentionally to make sure that we keep people where they are i
0: will talk next episode about how legendary has started to, how we, how I got here, how we have grown, how we've gotten to that conversation of where it was a very, uh, a very heated fellowship, mm-hmm. um, in regards to the compliance, the regulations and, um, how I saw that, how I see it now and some of the same ideas, uh, that you have, so we 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 hope that you join us um, on the next episode of the Come Ripple back. Effect. But, but listen, more dad jokes. There, there are, but before you go, um, there is going to be a we have a steak off coming up. Yes. Next is it?
1: It's next week, July thirteenth. My pup's birthday. So the
0: steak off. We, so we challenge each other to who can cook the best steaks. Yes. So I'm 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 doing one. Mary Beth's doing one. Um, Mary Beth even said that potentially. It could be in her In her, in the backyard, in her backyard. Yes.
1: Oh, well, the steak off will be in the backyard it, for sure.
0: That's going to be there.
1: Maybe podcast episode three is being filmed at that time. It's a, the it's a sizzle episode.
0: <laughs> we going sizzler. We going I am, sizzler.
1: I just want to say right now, in terms of a balanced playing field here, I am getting a new grill because I True. singed my hair off the other day doing something really stupid. Uh, and we're getting a new grill, and it's one of those wood chip filler smoker grill things, so I haven't received it yet. I haven't tried it yet, so. No problem. It'll just be fun Yeah,
0: uh, to do it. You guys, does WCC have anything coming up in the next couple of weeks? Any events? Anything going on? Folks should uh, check out.
1: We are planning our next job fair at the end of. So Youth Works just kicked off yesterday. We have five hundred and some odd youth um, at seventy-eight sites across the city. So they started work uh, on the fifth. Dope. And which is super exciting. It's one of the biggest uh, cohort of youth that we've had since the days of ERA, which is different than ARPA. <laughs>
0: Oh, gosh. The acronyms uh, in this. Yeah, we don't have
1: to go into that. Um, but our, sometime toward, towards the end of August, we're having our job fair, I believe, at Polar Park. But I will get more details to share. Yes. Shout out Polar
0: Park, Kim Minor, the old team is over there. Um, join us next time on a Ripple yeah. Effect. Um, thanks for being here. And uh, we'll continue to have the conversation as we push forward this idea of a non-profit imperative to support community in new and innovative ways to create more equitable outcomes. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Peace. New shoes. You're listening to The Ripple Effect, a nonprofit imperative with Ron Waddell and Mary Beth Campbell. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share. We'll see you on the next one.